0: We bring you this special radio-television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon.
1: From the files of schlock and awe, welcome to Natural Selection, the
0: home of the DTV creature feature. Here are your hosts... Maddie Budrevich, and Dave Wayne. Don't you dare touch me! Stand back! No! No! Hello and welcome to episode four of Natural Selection, the ultimate DTV creature feature podcast. Um, My name is Dave Wayne and to my right I have my good friend Matty Budarevich. Hello. Thank you all for your correspondence and likes and shares and follows in the last few weeks. It's been amazing and don't forget to keep on sharing our podcast and telling everyone if they fancy something creepy and crawly that we're the people to come and see.
1: Not in a not in the way that you've eh, it, it you know. hinted at it. That you've made it sound quite seedy, but uh, it's been said. <laughs> not it's been thing. said.
0: <laughs> so uh, today, what have we got? We've got a double header, um, and we've got some we've got some spiders legs. <laughs> yeah, spiders re- legs. You should really see to. Um, <laughs> um, and then we've got some 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 dog on dog action. Do- yeah, oh, some. some uh, doggy.
1: We had. We're doing it doggy style. Doggy style. There yeah. we go. We might as well get all the innuendos out why there. Why not? Right not so, so,
0: how are we going to approach this? So, we got Arachnid coming up first, which is Jack Shoulder's film, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, why have we chosen these two films?
1: Well, Arachnid uh, from 2001, mm-hmm. directed by Jack Shoulder. Yeah. And Rottweiler from 2004, mm. directed by uh, Brian Usner. Yeah. Okay. Uh, both of these films are productions of Brian using his uh, old company The Fantastic Factory Okay, um, and the reasoning behind this is um, while 2004 sort of is, is maybe a little beyond our remit because you know we're really trying to focus on yeah. the ones um, between 99 and 2002 times mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um, Rottweiler and Arachnid are uh, Everything we've looked at so far has been uh, released by Trimark. Yeah. Okay. Well, at least um, stateside, anyway. So to sort of recap what we said last episode, um, Trimark was formed in 1984 by Mark Amin as Vidmark, and the company was originally a video distributor, but they moved to production In 1988, Mm -hmm. uh, when they stumped up a bit of cash for Demon Warp with George Kennedy. Uh, Demon Warp proved to be very, very profitable thanks to video sales, um, international and cable TV sales. Mm. Um, And Armin ended up rechristening Vidmark, Trimark, in 1989 with an eye to moving in uh, theatrical and uh, theatrical distribution and movie production mm. of his own mm. so the first film that Trimark pick up is Warlock the uh, the wonderful Richard E grant Julian Sands movie yeah. great stuff um, and so they picked that up for theatrical distribution in 89 uh, and Trimark quickly go on to become one of the uh, you know one of the great companies of mm. 90s B cinema uh, particularly horror. You know, so you got the Warlock sequels, you got the uh, Leprechaun franchise, and Return of the Living Dead Three mm. by Brian Usner Indeed. Okay, so Brian Usner you know, if you're listening to this, you, you'll be well versed in the work of Yuzna. I'm sure. You know, he this is a guy who needs no introduction. He's the producer of Reanimator, the director of Society. Uh, Produced from beyond, produced dolls. Um, you know, just a, a wealth of great, very distinguished, yeah. uh, kind of schlocky, mm-hmm. kinky, <laughs> weird horror movies, okay? Sort of like, um, I always liken Usner to be, uh, you know, a sort of cross between David Cronenberg and Frank Henenlotter. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, the midpoint looks, between the yeah. two. Now, Usner, uh, he had a relationship with Trimark mm. and Mark mean, You know, they'd... they'd uh, Dealt with each other on a couple occasions uh, long before um, Arachnid and Rottweiler. Um, Usner uh, supposedly he'd helped prep the video release for Warlock back in 1991. Right. Um, and of course, you know, like we mentioned, he uh, made Return of the Living Dead three for mm-hmm. them, uh, and uh, The Dentist and The Dentist two. Yeah. Which were both incredibly. Uh, successful women played on HBO and ha- have become real cult favourites based upon their DVD releases and video releases from Trimark. Um, now, The Dentist 2 was made in 1998. Yeah. Okay. And in, at the 1998 CGS uh, Festival in Spain, Usner was there with The Dentist 2. Mm. It was uh, competing um, for in the best film category, right. which, strange enough, uh, Vincenzo Nathalie's Cube, ended up winning mm-hmm. um and while it teaches julio fernandez the president of uh, spanish company film max mm. uh, invited usner to work in spain with him to make a slate of horror movies yeah okay now usner he'd already it flirted with the idea of forming like a hammer type brand mm. before you know a couple of years previously he touted the seven sins of horror um around miramax struck dimension which um Strangely enough, the film Idle Hands was originally designed as oh, one of okay. the Seven Deadly Sins uh, concepts. It right. was meant to be based around the sin of sloth. Mm. So, you used wanted to set up like a, a hammer type brand, a hammer type label. So, him and Fernandez they formed the Fantastic Factory, mm. okay, which um, great, great little company. You know, they ended up producing stuff like Faust, Love of The Damned, yep. um, Beyond Reanimator. Uh, uh, Dagon, yeah. Stuart the great Stuart Gordon movie, and the aim of Fantastic Factory was to bring horror talent from all over the world to Spain, and to develop uh, local talent, which of course it did. You know, if you look at some of the movies, if you look at Darkness, if yeah. you look at Roma Santa, mm-hmm. you know, you have Juan Balaguerro and Paco Plaza. Some mm-hmm. of their early stuff. This is before they would explode, or yeah. you know, you know, with, with Wreck. Mm-hmm. and so. All these fantastic factory movies, all except uh, Juan Balagueros Darkness in mm. two thousand two, which was picked up and butchered by uh, Dimension at, uh, at the hands of Harvey <clears> Weinstein, <throat> whose hands have got him in a lot more trouble since. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they all these fantastic factory films they were dis- distributed stateside via Lionsgate, right. who strangely enough had acquired Trimark in two thousand with Trimark's Mark Amin becoming the majority shareholder.
0: Mm.
1: Okay, So these Fantastic Factory movies, they are released by Lionsgate via the pre-existing relationship that Usner had with Trimark and Mark Amin. Okay? Yeah. Now, all the Fantastic Factory stuff, well, all of it, again, bar darkness, because it wasn't owned by them, it wound up playing on the Sci-Fi Channel. And one of the uh, Fantastic Factory films... Uh, became the highest tracking film of 2002 for sci-fi. And that, of course, was Arachnid, which was a creature feature. I've been in the jungle before you know. I can take care of myself.
0: Shit! <laughs> Something's not quite right here. You okay? Yeah, i just stuck. We are here to give medical aid to these people and
1: to learn what's killing them. In English? Find out exactly what they think.
0: Bid him? As by little thing agreed a spider that large couldn't exist so what was they? grabbed my boot this is interspecies mutation these creatures seem to be evolving at a lightning speed towards becoming the ultimate predators all spiders go to heaven didn't i read that in your book fires. But... Been listening to a clip from arachnid there jack shoulder's 2001 creature feature from the fantastic factory um jack shoulder sort of a uh, bit of a funny guy mm. um mm. not a great fan of what he does well i am a great fan and but he's not really it's a bit weird isn't it
1: yeah he um for a guy who's probably best remembered as the director of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 mm. and The Hidden Yeah, he is um, quite famously not a horror fan <laughs> um, and I think in a film like Arachnid mm. which was very 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 much a gun for hire job yeah. um, shoulders sort of um disinterest, shall Mm. we say, in the material um, really comes across.
0: Yeah, it's a bit weird. I mean, he said afterwards, didn't he? He said, oh, I I did it for the money. It was a stupid script, but I got to live in Barcelona for six months and it paid me well. Um, Mm. Everything was good except I had to go to work every day and shoot a dumb script. Haven't seen it since. I basically tell people to avoid that one.
1: Yeah, pretty pretty damning. And the, the whole... The whole thing with Arachnid is, you know, it just drips with that sort of contempt for the material.
0: Yeah. Um, you, you know, this is a guy that made Runaway Car, you know, four years mm, prior with Judge mm. Uh which, you know, I, I quite like. But, you know, it's in. It's I know we're not the biggest fans of Arachnid, but, you know, compared to Runaway Car, and, and I think it's a, it's a dodgy omen film as well in the mid-90s, it, it's a lot better than um, some of the stuff he, he has done.
1: You know, the, the sad thing is... Arachnid is probably one of the ones which along with you know, there's a Nightmare on Elm Street 2 which Mm. has had a a massive, massive reappraisal over the last few years and and rightly so it's a very, very good sequel a very bold sequel, Mm -hmm. it's mark on, uh, you know, on queer horror cannot be uh, understated Mm. you know, even though shoulder himself is pretty adamant that, you know (laughs) it it wasn't meant to be that gay but, uh, You know, and Alone in the Dark, which is his debut film, is very, very good. Probably one of the most interesting uh, Mm. variations of Mm -hmm. the slasher formula come out the eighties. The Hidden, I think, is just fantastic. A great piece of like Mm. action tinged horror. Um, but Arachnid, like Wishmaster Two, which Mm. he directed uh, just beforehand in ninety nine. You know, I I'm a big fan of Wishmaster Two, um, but again, it's got Arachnid's problem of Mm. you can just tell he's not that interested and he is going through the motions yeah which uh, is a shame really as Shoulder was effectively headhunted by Julio Fernandez mm-hmm. uh, from the Fantastic Factory you know like initially Arachnid was uh, w- was developed with an eye for first Robert Kurtzman mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, K from Effects, who of course had directed the original Wishmaster mm-hmm. um, he was first approached by Usner um, yeah. Strangely enough, Toby Hooper mm-hmm. was, uh, taught, was talked to by Usner with a, you know who wanted him to direct it, which obviously fits very neatly in with the fact that Toby Hooper was originally going to direct Spiders for a New Image as well. So yeah. Hooper seemed to be in some sort of strange um, eight-legged <laughs> vogue at this point. But Usner wanted him. Um, but when vote, that didn't work out, Julio Fernandez went to bat for Jack Shoulder, yeah. who because uh, obviously the hidden was a massive, massive success in Spain. Mm. Um, you know, and it was it was still regularly being shown on Spanish television.
0: Mm. So I mean, obviously, like uh, Shoulder's lack of interest in this film is kind of your bugbear, uh, mm-hmm. no pun intended. <laughs> um, but I mean, you've got a script there that was written. Prior to everything, wasn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. y- using the kind of uh, hints that the script was, was done, it was brought in by Sherry Bryant, mm-hmm. was it? Who, um, of course, was, was she
1: Was she co-producer on The Dentist? Yeah, she was associate producer on The Dentist um, and obviously had a... She was another connection in the point with yeah. Trimark, Ven, Stroke, Lionsgate. You know, a Mark a mean contact. Yeah,
0: so, so you got a script by Mark Sevey, who, of course, is, um, is, is sort of a... a, a, a a key member of the, of the 90s fraternity of...
1: Um, a a uh, mainstay um, of Cinatel.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was so prolific, wasn't he? He did 13 films in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them sequels. Yeah. I know we refer to Michael Device as that sequel guy. But in some respects, Mark Savvy should also bear that name. Because uh, you've got, you know, blentless 2, which I you know you love mm-hmm. deeply. Uh, class ninety 2, Ghoulies 4, Excessive Force 2, Force on Force. <laughs> uh, which uh, I saw the other night, it was on TCM, it was just, oh, it's just so good. Um, so, yeah, Mark's heavy script was done, so I think Usner pretty much tinkered with it a little bit, didn't he, to yeah, sort of um, mould it into what he wanted?
1: Added a couple more creatures, mm. uh, a couple more, um, you know, it was it was very much, uh, you know, the film Arachnid, as it suggests by its title, it's about a giant friggin' spider. Yeah. Um, Usner, um, he had previous creature feature form. You know, he'd, uh, he'd done Ticks as executive producer, yeah. which is probably one of the best director video movies mm-hmm. of the 90s, as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, how can you not lo- love a movie in which um, Carlton Banks plays a a tough inner city street kid, you know? <laughs> um, but, yeah, so Usner had made uh, Ticks, and that was very, very interesting. Um, insect action heavy as was his sequel um, Silent Night Deadly Night 4 mm-hmm. initiation which also contains some amazing amazing uh, bug effects by Screaming Matt George yeah um, so you know Usner as you know he was when you when he was developing the movies for the Fantastic Factory the initial slate stuff like Faust stuff yeah. like uh, Dagon uh, Beyond Reanimator mm-hmm. you know he his, his, his idea behind it was with Faust, you had a comic book movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With Dagon, you had a Lovecraft, a very classic sort of movie. That's right. Um, with Beyond Reanimated, he had a sequel to a well-known property, and obviously, to tick another box in sort of, uh, you know, in, in, in the sort of genre gamut, you know, to really represent what the genre was about, what Fantastic Factory could do, he wanted to do a creature feature, mm. and so Mark Seven, who a very very capable set of hands. You know, his script was pretty much written. It just needed a bit of tweaking yeah. to it.
0: Um, so, I mean, we start off here with a bit of a, uh, uh, a prologue um, about a guy, a pilot, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, who yeah. eventually turns out to be the lead actress's brother uh, that gets downed and then we're in, we're in Guam all of a sudden, um, which is a pretty crazy place. I mean filmed around Barcelona wasn't it but wasn't mm-hmm. some of the jungle sequences done in Mexico yes Yeah. Um, I mean it, I hate the beginning of the film in all honesty um, mm. the way that we suddenly get these these four key characters you've got, you've got um, sort of the lead guy which is uh, a character called Lev Valentine played by Chris Potter mm-hmm. um, you've got Lauren Mercer who is a Cornish born actress well known for The Descent 1 and 2 mm-hmm. isn't she played by Alex Reed. Uh, and then you got the, the doctor you got Jose Sancho um, you got Susanna who, um, who makes a great dehydrated stew apparently <laughs> um, and can cure your unsightly blackheads <laughs> you can um, you got her. So you have got these four key characters all turn up within like sixty seconds of each other, mm-hmm. and just say, "Hey, let's go. Let's organise this expedition." And it's, and it's done in seconds.
1: Yeah. And purely in a, you know, the, what, what's happened in the interim is that yeah. a, a bunch of uh, sort of indigenous people mm-hmm. have been flown over to this uh, hospital with these strange insect bites, yeah. which, as we, as is revealed in the prologue, is there's a there's a giant spider. Mm-hmm. Behind a giant, not just a giant spider, but a giant extraterrestrial. Yeah, but you know because this, this, it turns out this uh, this aircraft crashes into it, and this this you know, a giant spaceship, and this spaceship spills its contents all over the mm-hmm. rainforest, and it's carrying all sorts of crazy biological creatures from the uh from the galaxy over. Yeah, which um, is a really really cool concept, no, but no. one that is just completely. Squandered with mm. the uh, flattest scripting and <laughs> directing imaginable.
0: True. I mean, then we got our, our fifth member of the of the uh, congregation. It's um, Dr. Henry Capri, played by Ravel Isyanov, who, of course, we know from. Uh, Two episodes ago, well, last episode wasn't it. It was octopus. Two episodes ago, yeah, two octopus Epi- two. Yeah, no, first octopus. First episode octopus. one. Episode two one.
1: one. Ravelisiano from John Ayres octopus. Indeed. Um, he's one of these sort of uh, renter Euro baddies who sort of pop up in these kind of things. But, but here, completely playing against type as an as an eccentric. Um, uh, spider specialist. He's
0: playing Geoffrey Combs, essentially, isn't he? Mm, I mean, yeah, he is. He, yeah, he he's yeah. now, even has the look of Geoffrey Combs in this film. Mm. And sort of makes you think, mm, you know, was Geoffrey ever sort of intended for that role? It seems like a role that really, really fits um, him.
1: I'd also really like to add that uh, the Henry Capri character is the author of a book called Arachnid Fun Facts, <laughs> which is a title that is quite uh, ill-fitting, I think, of someone who's supposed to be an academic. Yeah. Um, and it also makes of a least convincing prop book ever. <laughs> like, I mean, when you see this thing on camera, yeah. it looks like it was made on paint. The font's like a primary school bulletin board display, you know?
0: Yeah, it's, it's not great. Um, but you see, to me, once it gets to the jungle, then the film completely changes. Mm. And you can see the influences from the 50s. Um, and it does have a bit of a better vibe about it um, I just think it, it really lifts during that period do you just think it's flat the whole way through
1: or? I, I do I to me regardless of how many little creatures sort of pop up in the mm. interim until you get to the big spider reveal like in the last half hour the film just like and that's not to say the spider reveal is particularly well done either because we'll get to that bit because I think that's a very it's not a very well-assembled sequence of stuff and, mm. you know, everything that happens, it's just... You know, the, the, the big problem is Shoulder's complete lack of investment in the material. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell he just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> and you know that translates to the screen. The film just plods along, and ultimately, I am as much as I want to like what's going on because there is some cool stuff. There yeah. is so you know, I the characters um, have a few little jibes and barbs between them and mm-hmm. stuff. The effects work, which we'll get onto, is 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 really good for practical stuff. Mm-hmm. But if Shoulder, you know, he's just locking the camera off. It's pointing, shooting. It's mm-hmm. like the, if he doesn't care.
0: Why should we? Yeah, but I, I thought in some respects, uh, you know, that that flat element of it almost harnessed that 50s style of just mm-hmm. a, a rush mm-hmm. a rush released movie, you know, some, you know, in, in saying that, it kind of blended the sort of oversized, genetically mutated hysteria of the 1950s with the icky, gooey, FX wizardry of the 90s stroke noughties. Mm. So, in some respects, I don't think. I don't think shoulders flatness really diminished what it was because if they wanted to make a fifties monster movie, then to be honest, well, aside from a couple of you know key monster movies from the fifties, the majority were pretty flat and pretty lifeless and mm. pretty much paint by numbers, you know, uh, creature features. So yeah, you expect more, but mm. for what it you know comes in with, I was I was pretty satisfied with it.
1: I think I'm just. I judge it based upon the quality of using other stuff. Mm-hmm. Even as a producer, there's always a distinctly using yeah. a thumbprint mm-hmm. to his stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like Ticks is just <laughs> rapid fire. There's something mm-hmm. constantly happening, and there's there's a, there's a sense that Sevi's script and that user as a producer is aiming for a sort of like rapid fire approach to it. Yeah. To sort of make things happen, but it just never it just doesn't leave the gate Mm, you know mm. and uh, like I said there's a little bit of life injected into the film during uh, when the spider the giant spider reveal this whole bit in a military bunker where it's attacking everyone Uh, but even then it's so just blandly shot and so like cobbled together that the practical effects which are, you know which are pretty much the last hurrah for the great steve johnson yeah yeah you know at least for a, for a while mm-hmm. you know they are just completely you know, they're very cool uh, and you know and it's, it's something that even johnson himself has expressed pride in and but they and the, the performances which are very game are just really undone by like the just the lazy attitude of of shoulder
0: yeah i mean even i suppose the practical effects i mean Steve Johnson does do an amazing job, but even some of them don't quite work. I mean, there's a great scene, sort of a nightmarish transformation sequence. Yeah, mm, yeah. Which yeah. is great, but it's not quite there. It's almost like a dummy run for a... It's almost like a... Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a finished um, transformation sequence. It feels like Yeah, it could a, have
1: done with a bit more tweaking. Yeah. Yeah, like I think for, you know, knowing a little bit about... Um, Steve Johnson. I think he was heading. This was just on the precipice of his career burnout. Just yeah, shortly before, yeah. he, you know, he he was he could sense that CGI effects were coming in, mm-hmm. and the, the, the practical guys like him, who previously had these like rock star type lives across the pages of Fangoria and stuff, they mm. were getting pushed out. Yeah. He was losing bids on projects and stuff mm-hmm. to, because the CGI guys could do it cheaper, and. You know, I think that maybe he wasn't on set. You know, he's quite can in, in views um, in the uh, on the old Arrow DVD mm. of Arachnid. He's mm. very candid, saying that he was more interested getting drunk and going dancing around the <laughs> beaver. You know, he was just letting his FX guys sort yeah. of like take the reins, but he designed all the effects. Um, you know, and there's a, there's a bit of creativity in there and stuff like that. Um, and you know, compared to compared to other films of uh, of a similar budget uh, you know there's a, a certainly a, a bit better quality there with Johnson's stuff there's a, a more more of a professional rather than a sort of like oh yeah we can just disguise it with clever cutting you know this, mm-hmm. that giant spider effect mm-hmm. you can see that is a giant spider that they've up. actually made yeah. You know, and it look and that, it looks fantastic. It's up there with um, we talked last episode about King Cobra. Mm. You know, and the Kyoto brothers' effect mm-hmm. in King Cobra is you know, Arachnid belongs alongside that as something that does look very very cool, even if it maybe in its movement isn't quite as polished as it should be. They could have had a bit more practice, yeah, puppeteering it and stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, from a technical point of view, I mean. Shoulder is working with a few people he was familiar with. I mean, mm-hmm. he's got Anthony C. Ferranti there, who's who's did makeup on Wishmaster Two that he's taken over mm-hmm. to do this film. The same DP from Wishmaster Two, Carlos Gonzalez, um, and you've got a good editor in in, in Juan Velata from uh, Dagon. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, you just feel a little bit um, frustrated, uh, I guess, that you know it didn't quite fulfil what. The potential that it could have been because
1: I mean, I you know, with Shoulder, like we said, he's expressed his distaste for horror, particularly the schlocky low budget end that he often works in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, 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 like, like we've explained, he's, he does it for the money, not for the love, which can be fine, you know, mm. everyone has to make a living, and you know, I'd be delusional if some if I didn't say that some of my favourite directors were strictly mercenary. You no, know, like no. a lot of it like a lot of the stuff Jim Wynorski's done. I, I love Wynorski, but he is driven by the market. Fred Owen no, yeah. Ray, I love Fred Owen Ray, but he's driven by the market. Mm. He's driven where the work goes. You yeah. know, Fred Owen Ray famously has um he doesn't like erotic thrillers, even though he's made some bloody good ones, mm-hmm. like in a sanctum. Yeah. Um so, you know, everyone has to make a living but I've always got the impression with Shoulder that he's kind of snooty about it. Yeah. And has always maybe been a little unhappy that he's never made um, the more artful
0: pictures that he clearly wants to. This is pretty much, this was his last call as well. He went to India two years after that, or a year after that, to make Beeper, Mm. which was a really bizarre film, made for the Indian market, but you had Harvey Keitel in it and Joey uh, Lauren Adams. And that really, uh, that did not set my loins alight, so to speak. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I didn't fancy that at all. So it, it's a shame, you know, maybe maybe in another life he'll come back and make a, a great Jean Renoir film of some Yeah, kind. well, he is a very...
1: He's a, he, you know, that's the thing, he's a big fan of... Uh, he likes to talk about French cinema and stuff when I'm afraid that's not the hand he's being dealt with. So instead we get some brilliant movies by him, like The Hidden, like Elm Street 2, like Alone in the Dark. But mostly we get some films that are... That could have been brilliant, but a a sank by his sort of. I don't want to say contempt that makes him. I don't think he's a a bitter guy. I think he's just a bit frustrated at what could have been. And that, uh, in the case of Arachnid, it's never been more apparent.
0: You're listening to Natural Selection,
1: the home of the DTV creature feature.
0: I'm scared
1: of what? The monster.
0: The just beginning. I guess today just wasn't your lucky day. You want me? Come get
1: me! Ah!
0: Rob Weiler. <laughs> <laughs>
1: from rottweiler there by brian usner his directorial follow-up to beyond reanimator and the seventh of nine films that he would produce for the fantastic factory and uh, i'm i'm gonna put it out there right now probably one of my favorites yeah
0: contentious or what it is contentious because you know Normally when you do a bit of research on these films and, and, and you look at people's opinions and you look at reviews from either the, when it came out or maybe people have looked back, back at it in recent times, you tend to get a, a broad spectrum of opinions. Mm. But I think with Rottweiler, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's one end only.
1: Universally lambasted. It
0: is universally. <laughs> I mean, people really despise this film. Yeah. I, I don't know what they were <clears> looking for.
1: No, I mean, I think, uh, I can, I'm going off a kind of hazy memory here, Um, and, you know, I don't want to get too autobiographical, but I can remember, (laughs) you know, I know I want to hear the sort of, like, nostalgia wanking going (laughs) on, but, um, you know, like, I can remember Rottweiler being announced, and it was announced more... um, the film that was announced wasn't the film that it became, Mm. it was more akin to something like Cujo if memory serves, it was about a bunch of um, teens on like a spring break kind of thing getting attacked Mm. uh, by a a, a, a murderous robotic dog Mm -hmm. now the robotic dog thing, that stayed you know, the Rottweiler the the eponymous Rottweiler is um, basically the Terminator of dogs, but um, the eventual film uh, was sort of, uh, in the words of using it, a, a free adaptation of, um, a, of the novel El Perro by uh, Alberto Vázquez uh, Um Now, I'm not going to pretend I'm familiar with his work or anything like that. Um, F- Figuero wrote Rottweiler's script um, with input from uh, Miguel Tejeda Flores and... Uh, CG's Festival director Angel Sala and uh, Mike Hostench who would go on to produce Baskin yeah but uh, this sort of free adaptation um, apparently from what I gather because I think the novel is only available um, in Spanish yeah. El Perro is a fiercely fiercely political novel you know drawing upon the sort of political history of Spain with fascism and things like that yeah,
0: well the book was published in 1975 mm. which of course was the final year of Franco's rule mm. So you can you can almost imagine that that um, Vasquez Figueroa was writing it, you know, 73, 74, and up until that point where that fascist mm-hmm. dictatorship ended in Spain and obviously um, democracy uh, began to rule. Um, but yeah, he's a massive writer, isn't he? he sold twenty five mm-hmm. million copies of his books. Yeah, most famous the... film ad- adapter was probably a shanty with Michael Caine in nineteen seventy nine. Um so this this is like a this is a major piece of work.
1: You know and and also uh, the the novel El Perro it was um it, it was adapted before in 1977 oh. um uh, as El Perro um, I think I believe it was released in England um called A Dog Called Vengeance. Right. Uh, starring Jason Miller of oh. the Exorcist. Uh, again I'm not going to express any familiarity with him because I've never seen it, couldn't track a copy down in time for this, Um, but uh, what struck me was um, the film was actually co-written by a guy called Juan Antonio Porto, who uh, also wrote something called uh, El Basque del Lobo in 1976, which was a film based upon the true events that would... uh, Inspire using his um, previous Fantastic Factory production, *Roma Santa*, the uh-huh. werewolf hunt. So it's strange as that little link there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was a a free adaptation that sort of stuck to the core idea of the novel.
0: Just quick trivia, quick trivia, which mm-hmm. I know you're gonna like, get this in like five seconds, but I'm gonna ask okay. you anyway. you no, put me on the spot. I'm gonna put you on the spot. What links the author of Rockville with the Silent Night? Deadly Night franchise. Pass. 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 Oh, what is it? Got you. Usner. hmm Directed. Solomon. Silent Night. Deadly Night 4. Deadly yeah, Night yeah, yeah. Monty Hellman. Directed. Silent <gasps> Night 3. Oh, my God. Monty Hellman directed Iguana. Which
1: was based on a novel by him. Wow, well played, sir. That's all right. Well played. It's got to wow. come in handy sometime. That is amazing. we're <laughs> dropping the Iguana bomb in Duh. there as well. What a, what a wild movie that is. Got to be there. Interrupted your flow. Sorry, go on. Sir. Uh, yeah, where were we? Free adaptation. Free adaptation. Free adaptation. Free adaptation. Um, uh, so Rottweiler sticks close to the idea of a um, prisoner being mm. pursued cross-country by a dog. Money. Instead of in the novel, it's not set in like the Spain of the day. Mm-hmm. It's set. Um, it's it's set so many years into the future, and it's not a German Shepherd that's chasing him. In Rottweiler, it is obviously a Rottweiler which has robotic enhancements. Mm. Okay. Um, what strikes me about the actual film is that it's... Uh, it begins. We're introduced to Prisoner 275, a guy called Dante, who yeah. is a, played by William Miller, mm-hmm. who's a, an English guy, who's actually a fairly big Spanish TV star, yeah, which is yeah. kind of crazy. And we're introduced to him in a section called Zone Control. And before this caption comes up saying that it's the year 2018, which obviously Rottweiler was made in 2004, so this is, you know, it's, it's a near future shocker. Uh, so 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, a prison camp immigration containment zone southern Spain and my god watching Rottweiler today (laughs) it is if you took the southern Spain part out Mm -hmm. you know this is a remarkably prescient bit of future shock you know take away the Spain immigration camps in the age of Trump (laughs) like this is you know the, the, the fact is that then we're introduced to um you know this this dictator character mm. who's played by uh, Euroshock icon Paul Nashie, Yeah. you know and he's this real unpleasant bastard
0: well that's the funny thing about the film really because you think to yourself well you're taking Spain and sort of the source out of the novel you're taking, mm. you're taking Vasquez Figueroa out the novel to what he intended and you're relocating it into American location kind of thing well, hint at, at mm. it being more American. It's yeah,
1: it's it, it, it's an Americanized Spain, you know that, that that though I don't think it's anything to do with like the narrative, you know they make it clear that it's set in Spain, but no, the but, Fantastic Factory films, uh, mm. you know, it, they're they're done primarily for the English market. Yeah, you know, they're not subtitled or out like that. But
0: you, you sort of wonder as you go into it, you wonder how much of the the tone of the original novel will be diminished and how mm-hmm. much it'll be reduced. Mm-hmm. Will it be completely sort of have its both cut off and, and be quite sort of um, bland and non-political but it's not I think you, as you say yeah, you know, in it's 2019 it's political it movie it is very
1: you know the, the, the Paul Nashie's character a guy called uh, Cuffard, mm. um, you know he's a, he's a dictator mm-hmm. um, hates immigrants yeah um, rapey you know you, <laughs> I'm sure you can tell where I'm going with this right yeah. you know they, they the comparisons to where we are mm. in the world now, particularly with you know the, the, with Trump in the White House, this mm-hmm. is it's it's quite frightening, yeah. you know. And obviously, the central metaphor of the film is that you know it's a little heavy-handed, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. But man, man is beast, you know, and that m- men are worse to each other than any animal can be, and all yeah. that st- stuff. And you know, it's all about savagery. You know, the stuff about immigration, you've got the to-haves and the Mm to-have-nots and stuff, you know, because, and and it seems to present this sort of future shock world, which um, I read a couple of criticisms about Rottweiler saying that, like, why do people do this when they don't have a budget to show, like, what life's like in the future, but I think it does it very well, but it's just not... It, it's not on it's not hitting you across the face you know it's really no. quite subtle it's very a very so, yeah. you know you can tell that it's like a, a nightmarish landscape yeah. particularly when the Dante character is pursued into the city and he goes into like the red light district mm-hmm. and stuff but you know you've got this sort of like you, you know a lot of the background vistas when it comes to shooting shots of like the Spanish industry and stuff it's like a cross between Blade Runner and the devils mm-hmm, you know in terms mm-hmm. of look this sort of industrial gothic look yeah. to it and it, it, it's very uh it feels a lot like like it is building a world mm. you know but it's uh it's just it's just crazy absolutely crazy and, it, and it's very cleverly done to make you feel like it, it feels much bigger than it is it's a very expansive film do you
0: think the flashback sequences were an issue for people i mean people like uh, linear storyline don't they especially mm. sort of the hard of thinking nickel dragging horror crowd, um and it does tend to you know those flashbacks which start obviously on the boat um, mm. do you think that asks too much of an audience which maybe doesn't want to think too hard or maybe doesn't want
1: the, the problem uh, the problem's twofold I think in terms of structure mm. Okay, the first problem is that Dante and his girlfriend who uh, the reason he's been chased by this Rottweiler after he yeah. breaks out of a prison chain gang is he's trying to track down his lost love, yeah. You know, his lost love's called Ula Oola Loom in an explicit nod to Edgar Allan Poe, which is which is cool because there is a few little gothic touches to the movie, particularly in the scenes where we get uh, using a, pardon the pun, reanimating the canine. <laughs> the, the canine. Um, but the problem is that Dante and Ula, they're not particularly nice people. You know, they're spoiled yeah. bratty rich kids. They're playing a game that they call infiltration, which yeah. is you know it reminds me a lot of the. Have you ever read the Chuck Palahniuk novel *Haunted*? No, oh, yeah. uh, I haven't like read it a, There's like a little vignette in that where two of the two of the people, uh, sorry, one of the people, she's this rich housewife and she dresses she dresses up and pretends to be a homeless person to get a kick,s <laughs> you know. And that's the world that Eugen is trying to put across. Yeah, everyone yeah. has become that jaded that this sort of savagery mm. is the norm. That's why someone like Paul Nashi's kufad uh, is allowed to sort of exist and cast rule over Spain because you know it's. It, he's a nasty bastard and it's survival of the meanest and fittest. Mm, okay? Mm. Now, Ula and Dante aren't particularly likeable characters. No, um, no. And the flashback structure, now I like it because at the end we go full circle. Mm. You know, we, we realise that Dante's quest has all been for naught because he was actually there yeah. on the night that Ula was killed. That's right. And so she's not alive, she's dead, and Dante had a hand in it. Yeah. And the whole thing has effectively been a game mm. by far But... You know, I I like it in a sense that, to my mind, when I when I watch Rottweiler, I it reminds me of like a, a, a an Alejandro Jadowski film. Yeah. You know, it's it, there's, a, there's a real sort of acid western sort of flavour to it. It's, it may, it'd be a great great double feature with uh, El Topo.
0: There's a big western theme running right the way through the middle of it. Isn't mm. there? I mean, um, yeah, it's easy to spot. But yeah, you, you're right. Um, that would be a trippy double book.
1: Oh, it'd be insane. You know, Rottweiler, it's a film concerned with metaphor. Um, it's not entirely successful. You know, it, it, it is very, like I said, heavy-handed, mm-hmm. you know, at times. Um, and the script isn't really well thought out enough. Um, but, you know, it's got all the hallmarks of, of, of like, the acid Western subgenre. You know, it's got the excessiveness for violence, for bloodletting. This sort of... The ideas of, like, outsiderism, you know, the idea of, like, a quest to find something as well mm. as yourself, you yeah, know, and yeah. uh, Usner, he's an ex-hippie man, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's, uh, he, you know, I'm sure he's very well-versed in counterculture.
0: Right. So, what do you think about the dog itself? Love it. Yeah? Absolutely love it, yeah, I think,
1: uh, bit- Vince
0: Crustani, wasn't it, and Greg mm-hmm. Ramundas. Um, I mean, we're, we're shown it in all stages of mm. sort of uh, reanimation and decay and 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 dead and alive. Um, do you not think it's a victim of sort of CGI
1: two thousand and four? Um, you know, we—it's something I constantly come back to. But bad CGI can be just as mm-hmm. charming as bad practical works. Yeah. I I look at Rottweil and I don't I don't think the the CGI. It's not great by modern standards, but it's just no. very, it's very serviceable. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the enhancements to the to mm. the jaws. It's got these wonderful metallic jaws. Mm. Um, it's got the, the glowing eyes and stuff. Uh, the the actual when its flesh gets melted off and it's sort of like you know it becomes like the uh, the endoskeleton look. The Terminator endoskeleton. Yeah. That's sort of yeah, it's kind of ropey, but it's not. It it doesn't distract. I've seen, there's a lot worse CGI out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it do it does its job.
0: With Rottweiler, I think I think people, like, it would help people to know more about it before they go into it. I mean, mm. maybe, mm. you know, unless you're... Unless you've had sort of a cursory glance at what the Alberto Vasquez Figueroa novel is about, unless you're aware that there's a little bit of a... Well, not a little bit, but a, a sizable political aspect to it, mm. uh, unless you're aware of maybe the Western element. I think you're expecting Cujo too, as you say. Mm. Or you're expecting Man's Best Friend to, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And you're not. You're going into something completely different. And I think I would have enjoyed it a lot less uh, had I gone into it blind. Um, and I think that may have been what a lot of people did when it initially came out in 2004, both from a critical and sort of a fan perspective as well i think mm. they sort of see brian using his name a above the title and they expect um well, they expect a brian using film i don't think it which could you could you tell it was a brian using film if you didn't Ab- know he directed absolutely. it absolutely really absolutely
1: i think uh that obviously the visual language mm. you know there's a lot of, like using a uh, has a very distinct visual style it's mm. very in your face it's very immersive he's very um he's very concerned with uh, you know pushing into characters mm, you know mm. really letting you see their anguish letting you see what they're going through um <laughs> yeah um, i also think as well that usner is a, he can be a political filmmaker i mean mm. god let's look at look at society mm, mm. you know which this would make a great companion piece <laughs> too um But also, he is concerned with uh, the human condition, particularly how the body can sort of go through a lot of damage and keep going, which is something that happens uh, within Rottweiler, and... Also, Rottweiler delivers delivers on the more exploitative and schlocky aspects that you come to expect from a using in a film. You know, there's, there's this great, great sequence where uh, at the farmhouse,
0: oh, yeah. where where mm.
1: Dante is, uh, he's raped at knife point by the farmer's wife. Yeah, Jesus. you know, and. Not only is that a wonderful bit of schlock along the lines mm. of, uh, you, you know, using his typical fruitiness, you know, it's yeah. in the tradition of his the, the sex and violence mashups within Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, within mm. Return of the Living Dead 3 uh, and The Dentist, you know, where where sex often or, or, or the naked body often leads to some sort of ghastly, gory payoff. Yeah. You know, it also outlines the thematic crux of the film. Yeah. You know, and, and and you know the the, the farmer's wife, who, uh, strangely enough, her daughter, her young daughter in the film, is played by the girl um, from Pan's Labyrinth. Indeed, you know, so a bit of Spanish horror royalty, as well, child horror royalty there. But, well, you know, the, the, the dialogue from the farm wife, who says, uh, when you're here without papers, there are few choices. You know, you, you belong to anyone who can pay. <laughs> you know, and it, it's power and control yeah. and the themes of the movie, as well as a really good, schlocky Usner set piece. And mm. I think that, you know, if, if, if you are a fan of Usner, if you admire his work, if you are familiar with um, society... But equally, if you are as familiar with his more goofy and knockabout stuff mm. like um, Faust, you know you can tell Rottweiler is very, very much using a film.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think of all the films that we've talked about so far uh, since episode one, I think probably this will be the one that fewest people have seen. Would you reckon?
1: I imagine so. Um, you know, this like the other Fantastic Factory movies. Yeah. Um, This was released on DVD in America via uh, Lionsgate, who of course had gobbled up Mm Trimark. In the UK, um, it was meant to be picked up by Mosaic, who were releasing a lot of the early Fantastic Factory stuff they'd released. Faust mm-hmm. Arachnid Beyond Reanimator um, for one reason or another um, I think it was just about the time Mosaic were entering administration yeah, I think it was Rottweiler I mean I can remember going into this DV, uh, DVD store called Silver Screen in uh, in, in Middlesbrough mm. I was going in there like every week asking where's Rottweiler where's <laughs> Rottweiler where's Rottweiler and this guy this, this chubbyish guy behind the counter this sort of like a cross fin comic book guy and what I imagine Quentin Tarantino was like <laughs> you, you know as a, as a movie fan yeah. He was very much always holding court and talking to mm. people about mm. movies. A very strong tastes and stuff, you know. And he, he, when I first went in to ask him about it he was like oh you's never the horror guy the horror guy <laughs> you know quite kind of dismissive kind of snooty yeah, about it yeah. And he, but he just got sick of me after about this really? six month stretch of like asking where Rottweiler was <laughs> and eventually I think it ended up coming over here in like 2007 2008 time when I complete, I can't for the life of me think of a label it's,
0: just, it's DVD label like yeah, called yeah, DNC yeah. which doesn't last long right um, but again it's I mean it's a really crappy DVD edition really and to be honest if you saw it unwittingly you wouldn't you know, really want to mm. watch it again, um, and that's a shame because um, it needs a little bit more attention. Yeah. So, so when our, our our loyal, you know, listenership rush out to um, the local uh, CEX and track it down and spend a quid buying it, I mean, um, it'll be a quid well spent. It'll be a and, quid, and, and, and you know, just to
1: just to add in terms of distribution, both. Arachnid mm. and uh, Rottweiler were released theatrically in Spain.
0: Yeah, I mean, what is, uh, quarter, quarter of a million for um, Rottweiler at the cinema, and, mm-hmm. and, and um, Arachnid took over a million, didn't it? Mm. Which you is, know, which they is did. Good
1: they, they did good money in Spain. The the, the the critical consensus they were they were savage, you know. Mm. Um, but again, most of the Fantastic Factory films were. Faust was um, yeah. apparently laughed off the screen really? when it was when it premiered. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, Beyond Reanimator had the uh, suffered the misfortune of just getting dumped straight to Sci-Fi, which I can remember two thousand and three time. I think it played at Edinburgh's Dead by Dawn Festival, mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, when Beyond Reanimator w- was announced as going straight to Sci-Fi, it was very, very much seen as you know the death knell of mm-hmm. the franchise. Which, despite a few attempts by us, it ultimately has been.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when people press stop on this and they go and rush off to, to CX and buy a copy, um I mean, everyone listening to this would be a brand new fan, and will' have seen you know at least half a dozen of his films mm. so are there any caveats that you think that they should sit down and, and and bear in mind when they when they watch this, or should they just just head on into it and and, and just absorb it and
1: um just remember it's bit of an amphibious 3D. <laughs> which is using his last directorial film, which is a genuinely bad movie. But of course, that's just me being glib. Um, I think if you if you're using a fan, you know, the risk of re- repeating myself, you owe it to give Rottweiler either a look if you haven't seen it already, or a second spin because there is a there is a lot of stuff going on that I think you might have missed first time around.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, thank you for listening. Um, please, please get back in touch with us if you do check out either Rottweiler or Arachnid for uh, the first time, or maybe just a, a re-evaluation. We'd love to hear your opinion, even if you absolutely despise it. I mean, we can take um, we can take opinions that don't fall in line with our own. We're not like other people. not very well. We will yeah, we will yeah. talk about you behind your back. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, please get in touch. Please keep in touch either via Instagram. Or Twitter, I'm at D Dave Wayne.
1: I am at Matty Budrevich.
0: Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Natural Selection.
1: Ta ta! Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the Schlock and Awe page on Instagram, while well, you're welcome to stalk Matty and Dave on Twitter. See you next time on Natural Selection.